and welcome to CNBC's continued coverage of the markets and turmoil. I am Brian Sullivan, everybody. Thank you very much for joining us here on Fast Money at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope you and your family are doing as well as can be in these difficult times. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, the market's doing perhaps as well as they could do over the last couple of sessions. We ended last week strong, of course, coming off of a very weak base at a big drop. But last week, the best week since 1932, well, we continued some of that momentum today. The Dow ending the day up 690 points. Pretty much most stocks that you look at, the MAGA stocks, the FANG stocks, you name it, technology, they were higher today. We'll get to those. The one thing, of course, that was not higher continues to be oil down another nearly 7% as well. We'll get to more on oil and what it may be signaling throughout the show. So welcome, everybody. We are very pleased today to be joined by... Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Dan Nathan. And for the entire hour, we also welcome in Emily Rowland of John Hancock Financial. Emily, it's a pleasure to have you back here on CNBC's Fast Money. Uh, Guy, you said it last week. You said that it seemed like the indiscriminate selling might be over. That gave you some comfort. Were you perhaps even more comforted by today's action? Yeah, and it's great to see. It's great to be here. And I got to give a huge shout out to everybody in Englewood Cliffs for making this possible to getting us all on. So thank you, number one. Number two, help everybody safe, obviously. And number three, yeah, I, I take a lot of comfort in the fact that the indiscriminate selling appears to be over for now. And I'll add this on top of it. You know, the volatility index, which was rallying all week, which wasn't a great sign on the back of the broader market rallying, was actually... <laughs> down today in a meaningful way for the first time in a while, Brian. So, yeah, I think that's encouraging. You know, Dan, Nathan, um, I tweeted out on Friday, I think it was, or over the weekend, I basically said, if you've got to keep asking if this is the the bottom, it probably isn't because it means there's still this sort of buying bias in the market. Obviously, we've had a number of pretty good days, obviously, in what has been an awful year on many levels. Do you think the bottom is in? Well, not really. I mean, a bottom is in, right? So the, the, the bottom of the panic selling that started in late February and followed through for most of March, um, that bottom is in right now. And, and I know that sounds um, a bit cavalier, um, but, you know, we had a 33% peak to trough decline in a little more than a month. I, I just, that's unprecedented, right? So um, there was, as Guy said, a lot of indiscriminate buying. Um, a rally was due. We've been saying that, I think, for the last week or so. So now we have a 20% rally off the bottom. I think we've talked about this over the last uh, few weeks, Sully. I mean, when I look back to 2001, there were two 20% rallies off of lows that failed. In 2002, um, there were two 20% rallies off lows that failed. Um, Go to 2008, there were two rallies of 20% off the lows. They failed. So this is a pretty common, it's it's basically a feature, not a bug of bear markets, and we're in a bear market. So, um, you know, the way I think about it here is that, you know, this is a great opportunity for traders. This is a really good opportunity, considering that we're still down 20% from the highs in the S&P 500, a great opportunity for those people with a long-term view to start dollar cost averaging into uh, names that you want to own for the long term. Emily Rowland of John Hancock, how do you see it and what are you recommending to clients right now? Yeah, we absolutely agree with that. And I think dollar cost averaging is the perfect way to approach this market. Um, We're looking for a few catalysts before we can kind of shift to a more risk on positioning here. 
We'd like to see the number of COVID-19 cases in the U.S. peak. We were weeks away from that, likely. We'd like to see the economic data bottom. Uh, we're, it's just getting bad now, um, and we're likely to see more pain to come. The data that we're getting now does not fully reflect the damage that we're going to see from the virus and the containment measures. And then we'd also like to see investor sentiment, again, get to that point of capitulation. I'm talking to advisors every day, and even before this rally, they were asking me, where should I be putting money to work? To me, that's not really a sign of a market. The one thing that we do need to remember, though, is that bear market bottoms are breeding grounds for bull markets. If you look back at the last number of bear markets over the past 70 years, and investing at the bottom gets you 15% annualized over the next five years. Don't get too cute trying to pinpoint the bottom, but dollar cost average into this market is what we're telling investors. So, so bottom line is you should be putting some money to work. And I understand your point about the COVID cases. Obviously, we want those things to peak out for many, many reasons. And Tim Seymour, every day before the show, right before the show, I take a screenshot of the Johns Hopkins site. We're up 20,000 cases from exactly this time we were yesterday. Um, do you believe that, that that peak and that rollover, while obviously more important to humanity, will also be equally or maybe more important to the stock market just from a sentiment perspective, like we're starting to come out of this gloom and doom. Yeah, and, and the sentiment has been all about pessimism and expectations of a double bottom and another retest. And I, I think as we get into some of the just the, the technical elements of the quarter end rebalancing um, and, you know, I, what was extreme uh, redemption and closures of a bunch of hedge funds that, that were tapped on the shoulder by risk managers and said cut, uh, you know, cut exposure aggressively. Then in many cases, especially at a lot of these hedge fund pod shops, were basically told to close their doors. Um, I think we've heard about some of these big uh, uh, muni funds, some of these mortgage-backed asset-backed funds. So uh, anyway, I just want to, you know, I want to emphasize that I think the market went through something here. Um, and I think the market has largely priced in health. And so you back to your question, which is, at what point, you know, is that enough? Have we priced in a lot? Look, the data out of Italy is is just absolutely sad, um, but it's better. And and the, num the numbers that came out today were, were as good as they've been in a couple weeks. So, um, yes, I think the key is what's on the other side. Um, I think it's very, very difficult to to in many cases to handicap what the economics are. But what we're all trying to do, uh, obviously, the duration of the health crisis affects uh, the credit and all the dynamics in the underlying earnings profile of all the companies that we want to roll up our sleeves and look at. And we'll, we'll, we'll do like the draft, Tim. We're going to do the snake. So we ended with you in the first round. We're going to start okay. with you in the second round as well. What are you watching? Were you snake encouraged draft. by right, good. the action in the semiconductors, the action in technology? What, what made you stay focused today? Yeah, look, we're, we're a market show, Brian, so it's nice to kind of be back to fast money for an hour and talking about things that I think are also part of the, the, the dynamics of markets and what they do. First of all, um, the fact that we don't spend always a lot of time talking about credit, but the rally in investment grade credit continues to be extraordinary. Um, some of this, though, we want to wait and see what, what investment grade really does after the Fed stops buying everything that moves. 
Um, but there's also been a ton of issuance on the long end. So I just want to say that that's one of the things you have to be watching. Look, with great companies, and we've seen the haves and the have-nots, and if you look at companies, Apple is now above the 200-day. I'm not doing cartwheels over this, uh, but if you look at the charts of a handful of companies, look at Intel, um, look at you know, look at some of the names that have actually gotten back to a place where you saw stability. They actually may have begun to began to have ground out a bottom. So I want to see that. Um, I want to continue to see some of the data on on uh, obviously the virus. Uh, but I, I I think. When we look at where companies have priced in the impact of the health crisis, I, I want to reiterate, I, I actually think we've priced in a lot of that. Um, the, the question ultimately is going to be, like, I, w- I want to look at what, what the job numbers look like on Friday. Um, I want to look at, you know, things like, you know, what, what goes on with other, some of these regional Fed indices. Obviously, today's Dallas Fed was shocking. Um, it went back to not only uh, 2008 lows, but well through that. And we know that that, unfortunately, is the center also of a lot of the problems in the energy sector. So it uh, was going to be extreme. But, you know, credit, dollar, um, where, where the macro goes, we've got a lot of macro at the end of this week that's very important. We know it's not going to be good. But ultimately, good companies, Home <clears throat> Depot, Nike, um, have started to trade with some normalcy. And, and Brian, I'm going to jump in real quick. In terms of what I'm looking here, I, you know, I'm, I think we're all saying similar things in a different way. I'm not trying to be cute here, but there also might be people saying, you know what, this market still scares me a lot. Is there any more upside? And if so, where should I start looking to peel out of things? And this is something we talked about, I think, last week. You know, we saw, obviously, that trough down to 2191 in the S&P 500 and off the recent high, the all-time high, you know, if we just made a 50% correction of that move, it takes you to somewhere around 2790. So you're talking about another maybe 150, 160 S&P points to the upside. And that's maybe where we stall. So I'll stand by that. Uh, I'm with Dan on this. You know, I think a bottom is in. I'm not necessarily sure the bottom's in. But I do think there's uh, potentially, you know, a little more upside to that 2800 level or so in the S&P 500. And I think that's what folks should be watching. Yeah, so Guy, and I don't disagree with that. I would just say, look, what I'm watching today, um, the underperformance by the Russell 2000, the small cap, I think that is a bit indicative of the stuff that the S&P 500, the stock market in general, doesn't really focus on. And that, when you think about this health crisis, it's morphing into an economic crisis. One of the things that cannot be accounted for in the stock market's gains or losses are the 15 million restaurant workers that are not um, being, you know, that are not employed right now. The tens of thousands of cruise ship workers and, and airline workers and Boeing workers and auto workers who are being furloughed. You know, I mean, when you think about what our economy is, 70 percent of it is the consumer that's being stopped down. Their inability to access some of this um, financial assistance in real time is going to be an issue. So what I'm looking at is the Russell 2000. I'm looking at the underperformance in the bank stocks today. I'm looking at the underperformance in, um, you know, some industrials, like I just mentioned before. Energy is a disaster. So you can get all geeked up again and buy the names that got us to the highs in February. But understand that the one thing that this bear market is going to take some time to heal for and to really make a bottom is going to be time. And I just don't think enough time has passed. So you may get to 2790 in the S&P 500. It may get to panic selling on the way back to those recent lows. I just don't know. I just think you want to be careful chasing the market here. I mean, I'm looking at the fact that the markets don't really seem to care very much about economic data anymore. Does anybody remember when they did? 
I mean, we talked about the Dallas Fed index today. U.S. service <laughs> last week at 39.1. Unemployment at 3 million and climbing from here. And certainly we'll be watching Thursday. That could be 4 or 5 million. This is a remarkable thing. And I understand that we've got fiscal stimulus, policymakers, central bankers. Obviously, a lot of ink has been spilled on everything that they're doing to support this economy and prevent a more you know, sinister credit crunch. But we're looking at an environment here where the data could get much, much worse. And I think it's pretty interesting that we're just seeing markets look right past that. It's, it's actually amazing to me. Dad, more Fast Money coming after the break. We'll see you soon. Welcome back to Fast Money. I'm Frank Collin. Brian having a few technical difficulties. We're going to try to get him right back in. And we're going to talk about a little bit of oil right now. Oil really getting hammered today, hitting an 18-year low. We're going to toss things over to Tim Seymour with more. And Tim, what are you seeing when you see these kind of results for WTI and Brent crude? What do you think? Shocking, Frank. Um, thanks for jumping in there. And, and if, you, if you look around the country and also look at subpricing below uh, what we're seeing in the futures markets, you're actually seeing uh, American oil being priced at $10 a barrel in a handful of North American hubs. Uh, we know some of the supply issues. We know some of the, well, we know the supply issues. Uh, people may not be aware of the storage issues, which are out of control. There's no place to put it. Uh, now, you know, ultimately, I, again, I, I believe this is an interesting time for oil. And just to take a big top down look at it, uh, you know, 18 years ago, which we're now going back to those lows. In fact, that was, you know, the, the early days of the commodity super cycle. Oil went through an overshoot on the way down. Global oil demand was 77 million barrels a day. Uh, even in the pullback and in a global, call it demand shock, um, it, it's going to be 100 million barrels a day. Uh, and at that point, we were producing somewhere in the neighborhood of, of uh, again, you know, 40 percent less oil. Um, but ultimately, what, what has to happen in the oil sector is you're going to have to see a supply response. And I realize that this takes some time to see some equilibrium work itself out. Um, but, but there's no question that the oil producers that help to, to kind of exacerbate this situation have to be looking at uh, the dynamics of their budgets. And we've talked about this before, too. You know, Russia breaks even at $42 oil, Saudi 85 on their budgets. Um, but, but ultimately, this is a case where this is unsustainable for every player in the world. And that means there will be a supply response. And markets will price that in ahead of time. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. We're going to toss things over to Guy Adami. Guy, we're seeing lows for uh, 18-year low for Brent, an 18-year low for WTI, and there's a potential that these OPEC nations could pump even more. What does that mean about for the global markets? Means it seems like they're you know they're willing to lose the battle and to win the war. I mean, if I'm trying to play what's going on geopolitically in terms of what they're attempting to do, so unfortunately, it looks like they're winning right now in terms of the individual stocks. I think Tim makes an interesting point. You know, for example, names that everybody watching knows. ExxonMobil clearly has issues. And that stock, I think, is going from 31, that trough we recently saw up to 37 or so. You know, a decent bounce. But then you look at a Chevron, for example, which has gone from that trough of 51 to 71. In terms of percentage, completely outperforming Exxon. So maybe you say to yourself, maybe Chevron's showing themselves to be a bit of a better company, maybe a better stock here. So anecdotally, I think that's how you have to sort of look at this. I'm not suggesting you're plowing in anything, 
But I think you're able to take things away if you watch carefully the performance of stocks that effectively compete with one another. Yeah, tough sector, though, to play here, because we know that those majors, um, they have those really fat dividend yields. We know that a lot of investors have stuck it out in this sector because of that. And we know that the potential for a cut in Exxon would be devastating for sentiment. And there would be a lot of investors who are there um, who just won't be there anymore. I mean, that being said, you know, when you look at the XLE, that's the Energy Select ETF, Exxon and Chevron make up about a half the weight of that. And then there's another, you know, a couple dozen names that make up the rest of the, the weighting of the XLE. You know, that could be one way to play it. It was at $60 um, just in January. It's down, um, I think, at 28 right now if you're looking to play for um, a quick bounce. Um, but again, the risk is, is that you continue to see this war play out and uh, oil, crude oil go lower, and you're going to see more pressure on the major um, EMP guys to make Maybe cut that dividend. All right, tossing things back over to Emily. Emily, you've been very bearish on energy. What do you think about the moves that you're seeing? Again, Brent crude down nearly 9%, WTI down more than 6.5%. Yeah, we've been looking at the dividend yield on energy as more of a distress signal and less of a, a value play. And for that reason, we've been more focused on getting our exposure to areas like yeah. alternative energy through global infrastructure. Uh, so stocks that actually have the ability to give you that exposure with some growth potential. Um, the other thing that I would that I would mention is just the kind of the multi-asset implications of all of this. If you have lower for longer oil prices, that's ultimately going to kind of be deflationary or disinflationary. It's going to keep the dollar well bid. It's going to be good for stability and not so good for cyclicality. Um, so there's a lot of implications across portfolios about what that might mean going forward. That's one reason that we've been positioned more towards quality growth, and we've been hesitant to really lean into cyclicality at this point. Yeah, that's a great point, Emily. And, and I was going to say it's not just cross-asset implications, but you know, let's get back to the market. Remember, it, it was that Sunday night when we all heard about the, the price war. It was really early, in, early that day on Sunday between Saudi and Russia. That was the linchpin for the market sell-off that we got into. I'm not saying that that's what this was about, uh, but getting back to credit. Uh, high yield uh, is about 10 percent energy. Mm -hmm. People forget, and we talk about this triple B tranche that is uh, one essentially notch above high yield, but 10 percent of that is energy. So uh, there's no question. And despite my, you know, my comments earlier that were relatively constructive on market dynamics, there is no question um, if this rapidly deteriorates, it will overshoot to the downside uh, and there will be a credit domino effect that doesn't have to necessarily fall into every other asset class. But energy really matters here. And and it's just also should be noted all the other commodities uh, outside of gold and precious metals that tend to be more of uh, all those other hedges that we know them to be um, are not trading well. They're, they're not bouncing like the market has. Look at copper, Dr. Copper, you know, you name it. Look at obviously coal and steel prices. If you look at rail volumes this week uh, for the quarter and year over year, we know they're awful. Um, and that tells you that this bigger economic impact of what's going on is something that we're watching. All right. Thanks a lot, Tim. We got much more coming up on Fast Money and much more on the big bombshell today from Johnson & Johnson and the global race to find a coronavirus vaccine. Stay with us.
All right, welcome back. You're looking at a live White House briefing on coronavirus. We're going to monitor this and bring you any relevant headlines. In the meantime, let's get the latest on the virus. Sue Herrera, she has the very latest. Sue? I do indeed, Frank. Thank you very much. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. Coronavirus cases around the world have now gone above 775,000. Here in the U.S., there are more than 156,000 cases. That is 50 percent more than second place Italy. The global death toll is more than 37,000. Italy has the most, with about 11,500. The U.S., nearly 2,900 people have passed away. Some welcome help for New York City with the arrival of the USNS Comfort Hospital ship. It will provide almost 1,000 beds to care for non-COVID patients. An emotional mayor, Bill de Blasio, thanking the officers and crew. This ship arriving is not just an example of help arriving in a physical form. It's also about hope. It's also about boosting the morale of New Yorkers who are going through so much. It's about saying to our heroes in those hospitals that help has come. And a Florida pastor has been arrested for continuing to hold large church services despite restrictions on gatherings. The Hillsborough County Sheriff says Pastor Rodney Howard Brown of the River at Tampa Bay Church has repeatedly violated social distancing orders from the president, the CDC and local officials. Howard Brown once prayed with the president in the White House. As always, you can get more coronavirus coverage by heading to CNBC.com. Frank, back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Sue. Much more coming, including why on more on today's push in the market and why it's moving higher. We're going to be right back. And welcome back to Fast Money. I'm Frank Collins. Stock staging a big comeback today. Let's bring in Solstein Capital CEO and founder Nadine Terman. Nadine Three words that you keep saying, cash is king. Tell us why. (laughs) Well, Frank, uh, you know, we like to tell our clients that running a bear by yourself is difficult to let the other investors get caught up on a day like today and go first. Um, When the volatility index of the VIX is above 31, we call the market uninvestable. So one of the best things you can do is hold some cash and be patient as you get more asymmetric opportunities. So, Nadine, you say be patient, but do we also want to be defensive or should we try to look at this rally as a buying opportunity? You know, we tend to get defensive. So I, along with most people, probably have some of those stocks you should have sold two months ago. And so today is a perfect day. Last week was a perfect opportunity. You can trim some of those positions and then take advantage of the opportunity to either short, add cash, or get defensive positions, such as uh, one of our favorite gold companies that was down today, to be able to pick up some of your more favorite exposures. Hey, Nadine, I'm, I'm with you 100 percent, by the way. I understand what you're saying, and thanks for being here. Here's a question just to play devil's advocate. You know, we could be in an environment, could be, I say, where, you know, the VIX just sort of bleeds away down to the levels you talked about, below 30. And meanwhile, we could be up another 15 or 20 percent, theoretically, in the broader market. Is that concerning? Or are you willing to miss that move? You know, we tend to trade the chop a bit for the counselor. It makes sense. 
So um, we'll shorts and cover, shorts and cover. There's a stock. I think I can't even count how many times last week I've done that. Um, so we will do that to make some uh, money for clients uh, when, again, it's appropriate. And as you're saying, though, it could go up, but it's never in a straight line. So you get this really choppy, volatile environment, and then you have to be a little bit more tactical. Add those positions on those days that are defensive, that is, on days like today, and then trim those longs and have a little bit higher beta. And that's how you get through a period where there might be some upflow, especially since it's quarter end and month end at the same time. Hey, Nadine, it's Tim again. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And, and as you look, though, at the subsectors uh, of the market uh, and you know, trades that have worked, especially during either growth constrained environments, certainly, uh, you know, growth over value is, is probably what we've seen in terms of uh, triple Q's, uh, NASDAQ 100 stocks outperforming the overall S&P. What, what are you thinking here? What are you thinking coming out of this whenever you get comfortable? Um, and, and again, you know, S&P. Uh, earnings estimates are, are coming down, but how far down do you need to see them? You know, we expect roughly a 25% peak to trough, that is decline in GDP. And the stimulus that you saw going on last week, it's about 10% of GDP, so it's just not enough. So even though people have brought down, let's say, second quarter estimates, they really haven't brought down the back half of the year. Um, we're seeing that consensus estimates are up 6% by the fourth quarter, and that just has to be brought down. So what we're trying to do is, let's say you are investing in tech, invest in those businesses such as, I won't say which ones we've owned, but since 2013 and the like, that um, might be in the data center business, that benefit while people are working from home, that benefit from an increase in cross-connects where companies have to come together and, and put their technology systems in the clouds together. We like those types of businesses. But if you're looking like for a tech company that has leverage, that might not have a great balance sheet, um, that is more cyclical, ad spend, then you're in a little bit more trouble. So just saying technology overall, you have to be very careful. And we invest globally across all sectors. So we do have, call it the favorite, unfavorite positions across all sectors. You know, Nadine, data centers and also REITs have become a safety play. But, Dan, where do you see this market going? What moves do you want to make? Yeah, so it's interesting. Nadine brings up a lot of good points about some of the new technology that is clearly going to benefit from this kind of work-from-home environment that's likely to stick around here for a long time. But I think it's really important to remember that some of these stocks, Zoom in particular, with a $40 billion plus market cap um, is kind of uninvestable here too, you know? So there's a lot of themes that are playing out in this market that are pretty interesting. Some sectors seem to be defensive, other ones where there's strong secular shifts towards cloud and data centers, that sort of stuff. Um, it, it seems great. I think that's one of the reasons Tim brought up Intel uh, before, one of the reasons why it's acting well or outperforming some of the names in its, in, its, um, in its peer group. So, you know, to me, listen, there's gonna be plenty of opportunities. I just think if you think buying right now after this 20% pop, after a 35% peak to drop decline is going to be that generational low. I just think you're a little too soon. I think Nadine and our and our other guest, um, Emily, brought in up some great points about S&P earnings, about recessions. This stuff takes time. The market can be reversed like it just has in the last week. The likelihood of the economy doing that is not particularly great right now. So I just think investors better be patient for 2020 here. All right, patience always a good thing. We want to thank Nadine Terman for joining us. We're going to toss things over to Emily Rowland. I'm going to give you the last word. Emily, what is your bottom line? 
uh, our bottom line. It's really just about positioning in this market, and it's all about participate and protect. Again, we don't want to try to call, call the bottom here, but we want to engage in this market in a thoughtful way. And for us, that's meant leaning into quality growth. A lot of that is technology. We want companies with strong balance sheets. We want companies with low earnings variability. And we want companies with the ability to benefit from this spending that's going to happen after this. It's probably not going to be that big bounce in cyclical stocks that you usually see coming out of recessions. For example, in 0809, it was really about the commodity complex. For us, the focus here is really on technology and then pairing this areas like consumer staples and healthcare, we think would be a good way to kind of barbell the approach to this market. All right. Interesting point of view there. More Fast Money coming up. And we're going to be talking about hospitals across the nation really scrambling to find key medical supplies. Our next guest has been on the front lines trying to keep up with this demand. Much more on that next. Plus, CNBC has continuing coverage of the markets in turmoil. That's tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Stay with us. Welcome back to Fast Money. I got the hamster running again to get that dial-up modem fired back, everybody. Sorry for the 30-minute delay. Frank Collin, total stud. Great work. Anyway, it's good to be back. All right, let's talk now and go to the front lines of the fight to save lives. And we're doing a lot of stuff on the markets in this show, and that is great. But let's get down to the nitty-gritty about the medical equipment that we need and the people who we need to go there to make it even while physical and social distancing is in order. And for that, let's go to a company that is right here in the, around the corner in New Jersey on the front lines, and that is KNF Newberger. Eric Wilson is the head of sales there, and he joins us now by phone to talk about this. And Eric, a lot of people aren't familiar with your company. It's been around since 1946, based in Germany, big company. What are you guys doing in New Jersey to make sure that ventilators and respirators will be available when we need them? Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Yeah, like you said, we're not the biggest company in the world, but we wrestle outside of our weight class. I'll say that. Uh, KNF is a pump provider, and a pump is a very important component within a ventilator and other medical devices. Uh, you know, we heard a lot about ventilators over the past couple weeks, but there's many other types of, of devices as well, things like diagnostic systems, uh, sanitation, disinfection systems, all using these types of devices. Uh, KNF is on the front lines, as you said. You know, we are a tier one supplier to some of these medical device companies, and it's important for our employees to feel engaged, to feel safe, to be able to make it into work so that we can supply these uh, pieces of equipment to the companies that are making uh, devices for the hospitals. And I would imagine, Eric, that your business has ramped up and the men and women at KNF have stepped up, even in difficult conditions. Where do we stand in getting these pumps out so we can ramp up the ventilator production? Yeah, it's been a real challenge, and I think we can leverage some really long-term relationships that we have with not only the medical device companies themselves, but also our suppliers. That's really the whole problem here is that the supply chain itself had to ramp up. And that's not just for the ventilators. It's for companies like mine. It's for companies that supply parts to us as well. Uh, but you're right. Uh, we are working hard. Our team is on it on a daily basis, uh, working with companies around the world. This is a global supply chain effort. 
And, uh, and I can tell you that uh, one of the things that's really nice to see is the collaboration with these large medical device companies. As you can imagine, they're under tremendous pressure right now, but they have been very accommodating. They have been working very closely with my people, and uh, that gives us the information that we need to pass on uh, to, to not only our vendors, but also to our employees to make them feel good about building the, the equipment that we do. Well, I'm going to ask you maybe to step out of your comfort zone totally, Eric, because you make the pumps, they make the respirators and ventilators, then they get put into the hospitals. Where do you think, where can you tell the CNBC audience we are in terms of really ramping this stuff up? Because as we know, that peak, unfortunately, is coming, and it's coming in a couple of weeks. Yeah, you're right. And uh, the good news is is that it's not like ventilator companies or these other medical device companies uh, have just started making equipment. Uh, we have uh, already orders on hand. We've been building equipment to go to these manufacturers uh, okay. on a basically monthly basis. That's been ramped up now to weekly shipments. And I can tell you that our supply chain teams are working around the clock. Uh, our uh, production teams are working very hard to make sure that we can ramp up. Where we're at right now, I would say, is uh, within the next month, we should be uh, doubling production. And a little bit past that, we probably will double again. I know we've heard those words used by other companies, uh, but that's, that's the, uh, the forecast that we're seeing as well. Well, Eric, we appreciate you joining us. Eric Wilson, KNF Newberg, and a big CNBC shout-out to all the women and men who are coming in day and night at your factory and getting us through this time, Eric. Thank you very much, and best to everybody. All right, so that company is designing these, you know, the pumps to try to keep people alive. They get the virus. The idea, though is to eliminate the virus entirely. And coming up, we have got a bombshell from Johnson & Johnson, the good kind, another New Jersey-based company that is doing its part in record time. We'll talk about that with Meg Terrell. Plus, on the option side, maybe a way to invest around Johnson & Johnson. We're back, and I'm back, hopefully, after this short break. All right, and welcome back to CNBC's continued coverage of markets and turmoil and fast money. It's great to have you back. Well, we just talked about a New Jersey company that is making pumps to help keep people alive. But the idea is to stop the coronavirus in its tracks, develop a vaccine so we don't even have to deal with that. And Johnson & Johnson unleashed a bombshell on America and the world today. Let's get more now on this good news story with Meg Terrell. Meg. Hey, Brian, it's the kind of bombshell that we're all looking for these days. J&J dramatically accelerating its timelines for a potential vaccine for the coronavirus, now saying they've selected a lead candidate and plan to potentially start human clinical trials in September. They say if all goes well there, they could potentially have a vaccine ready for emergency use authorization from the FDA in early 2021. Now, that would be just record time. And here we have a layout of the other players also in the field. Moderna, of course, partnered with the NIH has already started its phase one trial. If that goes well, that vaccine potentially could be available early to mid next year as well. Now, Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski joined Squawk Box this morning to talk about the company's plans. Take a listen. 
We expect to have results, interim results at least, from our trials, likely in December, at the latest early January, that should put us in a position early in 2021 to literally have hundreds of millions of doses available, and then by the end of the year, up to a billion. This is a bit of a moonshot for J&J uh, going forward, but it's one that we feel very is very important for us to be doing at this period in time. Now, that would be just record speed for vaccine development. We have never seen anything like that before. And of course, Brian, as we're all waiting for these vaccines and drugs to get developed, testing is going to be a key part of the response and already is. Abbott, of course, getting that clearance from the FDA for its test that can give you the results in 5 to 13 minutes. And what's great about this test is it can be done in the doctor's office, a very small box. The results are given to you right there on the spot. They're not shipped anywhere and returned. Abbott says they plan to supply 50,000 of these tests a day starting this week. So a lot of hope that will help us get a better handle on this virus as we wait for drugs and vaccines. Yeah, you know, Meg, I feel like we're getting there on so many levels, whether it's the testing, whether it's the treatment or hopefully the elimination of this bug. I want to posit to you, Meg, a good problem question, if you will. And I hope I hope that we have this problem some point. What happens if multiple companies come up with workable vaccines all around the same time? Right. That is a problem we are very much hoping that we will end up with in 2021. And, you know, I've been talking with some experts in the field about this, and they say, you know, that A, that would be a good problem, and B, we've seen that before. We have multiple flu vaccines on the market at the same time, and it's the marketplace really that decides uh, which one to use. Uh, unless one of the vaccines looks really a lot better than the other one, uh, that's probably what would happen here. But of course, there are a lot of variables still to figure out. The, drug, the vaccines have to get through the tests, prove they're safe, prove they work. If they do that, it will be wonderful to have them potentially in 2021. Yeah, let's hope that is the situation as well. Maybe a feel-good story there. Meg Terrell, we appreciate it. Thank you very much. Johnson & Johnson, again, all those folks. And New Jersey, just getting it done. Thank you all to you and your hard work. Just tonight on Mad Money with Jim, big deal tonight. You've got Abbott on Mad with Jim. We're going to find out more about these tests. When will everybody in America be able to do a very simple, painless, quick, with immediate results test? Abbott may know, and Jim is going to talk more about that coming up tonight. All right, let's talk no more about Johnson & Johnson. Guys, uh, it's good to see you again, by the way, even though I, I, I can't see you. Guy Adami, Johnson & Johnson stock was up 8% today, and, and it's a good news story, but J&J has said this is not a for-profit enterprise, this vaccine. Was this just kind of a, a sentimental trade on J&J? Yeah, and you can understand why the stock would go higher, regardless of what they said. I mean, it makes it makes sense. Now, with that said, I think you would have expected a big, bigger move if it were something they could profit from greatly. Now, I'll mention one other thing. You know, you look at the recent low in J&J, you throw that 111 low out the window, and, you know, effectively that 120 low, as it turns out, was a low we made back in June of 2018. So if you're looking to trade something against something, you know, J&J against 120 here, sets up rather well, vaccine notwithstanding. So I heard what Meg said. I heard you, what your question was. But yeah. I think if you just throw, throw that out the window, just look at the stock as a company to sort of get to play in right now. I think Johnson & Johnson, J&J, a long position against 120 makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's, it's just a, a feel-good story in a good way. Go ahead, Tim. 
Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Guy, Guy brings up some points in, in terms of the chart, and sorry to, to cut you off. I, I, I think J&J, with or without, first of all, this is extraordinary news for, of a great American company that I know has been uh, under some headlines that haven't printed very well, especially as it surrounds the opioid crisis. And, and I think that's really been the limitation on the stock, because you know, with or without this uh, you know, potential you know, primary efficacy uh, on the Voyager pad is, is a company whose form of business is growing. And a company whose medical devices business probably is going to have a very strong quarter. And a company who, who really, I, I think, has been trading uh, under some of litigation risk that, frankly, may be overstated for this company. It's also, you know, I, not sure if a company like this, if they could follow through and deliver uh, something that the, the, the country needs, um, does their litigation risk seem a little less, uh, you know, front and center? And, and, but anyway, I, I think J&J is a company you own here without today's news. And it's a company that I think actually has drivers on their three core businesses. Tim, good point. And by the way, don't apologize for, for stepping on me. I disappeared for 30 minutes. It's fine. I apologize <laughs> for that. Uh, <laughs> let's Welcome talk about back. maybe an, a, a bullish options trade here on Johnson & Johnson. Michael Coe, uh, there is a way to play it with options. What is that? Yeah, we were seeing that today. You know, I think uh, Tim was making some good points there. I mean, this thing is probably trading at about 15 times earnings, even if we just ignore whether they will or will not uh, be making a profit on uh, coming up with a vaccine. They've said that for pandemic use, they would not. But maybe thereafter, they would have an opportunity to profit off of this. We saw a lot of activity in the options market today. Actually, about halfway through the day, it had already traded about three times its average daily call volume on this news and where we saw most of that activity was buying of the April 145 calls. Those were trading for about $1.30. We saw almost 4,000 of them trading when I was looking at this earlier. Buyers of those calls were obviously betting that the stock could rally further. In fact, they are looking for a rally of about 10% or so over the next couple of weeks. But I also don't think that, as Tim pointed out, it's a bad idea on this particular stock simply to, to own it because it's not overly expensive. And unlike a lot of other companies, their business isn't necessarily completely impaired right now. All right, Mike Coe, looking at options action on Johnson & Johnson. Guys, thank you very much. All right, coming up after the break, your Tuesday and rest of week setup. We've had a nice little run for stocks at the end of last week. And coming into today, what's tomorrow? What's the rest of the week going to bring? We'll talk more about it. You're watching Fast Money. We're back right after this. All right, and welcome back to Fast Money. It is going to be a big data week. Now, take it what you will, but here's what we've got coming up. We've got the Case-Shiller Home Price Index. A lot of talk about the mortgage market melting down. We're going to find out, perhaps, consumer confidence. You've got both the ADP private payroll numbers and, of course, that weekly jobless number. We added 3.2 million to the jobless rolls last week and then the big monthly payroll number to round out the week. Uh, but, Emily, I want to go to you first we saw a Dallas Fed number today that was negative 70. It was supposed to be negative Thanks. 10. Do data points matter right now? Well, they certainly don't seem to. And I think today was an example where we saw some better news in terms of, you know, these potential drug therapies for coronavirus. And we still are seeing markets respond to this incredible amount of stimulus that policymakers and central bankers have pumped into the markets. You know, at some point, the markets will 
um, bottom right around the same time probably that the economic data does. And I think we've still got some pain to come here, but certainly there will be a, an attractive entry point. And by the way, thank you for coming back. I had the Virginia Tech uh, diploma here on display for you, Brian. So I'm, I'm glad you had me today. It's the only reason that I came back, Emily. You're, you're very welcome. I'm not, anyway, Dan, Nathan, is there any data point in particular that you are going to be paying most attention to? Not, not the economic data this week and, and not next month either. I mean, literally, Sully, we're, it's going to take months to work through this data. And, and so I think to Emily's point, I think yeah. that at some point, the markets will start to discount that data, and that's how you're going to start to form a bottom. But right now, we have very very low visibility on the health crisis. We have very little visibility on the economic situation. Um, and just, you know, the visibility that we have right now in the markets is a 20% rally after a 35% peak to drop decline. I would tell you, if you go back and you look at past bear markets, that first 20% rally is not the bottom okay so like we just have to kind of settle in here and say we are going to have a recession it's just a factor of how long that recession is and how long it takes market participants to digest that and work their way out of it over the next year i do guy wonder though recession or the d word i mean uh you know you saw the fed estimates could be 32 million unemployed yeah, well, it's a word that I, you know I'm not going to use because I just don't want to use it right now because there's no, you know, as bad as people feeling about things, there's no reason to feel worse. I'll, I'll mention one thing that I thought was encouraging to sort of end on a high note. The fact that yesterday President Trump came out and said, you know, the quarantine is going to last until April 30th and the market took it as well as it did today, understanding it's just one day, I get it, I think was somewhat encouraging. So anecdotally, I'll take that as a positive, Brian. <laughs> Yeah, certainly a long time, but we got to kill that curve. All right, let's do our final trades right now. Emily, thanks for being patient and being cool the entire hour. Let's start the final trades off with you. What are you looking at? Sure. Um, our big trade would be just to go long XLK. You know, it's CapEx and spending is going to recover from this, from this, but the lion's share of that is going to go to technology. We want to be where the cash is. We don't think that we're going to see that usual balance from cyclicality coming out of this. We'll still be yep. in a low growth, low inflation environment. Dan? Yeah, so for all the reasons those guys like Johnson & Johnson, I like Gilead here. I think you use 70 as a stop to the downside, but I think the cheap stock is good up some. Tim? I like UTX here. Again, we know their commercial is going to be down. Their defense business is great. I think the Raytheon deal closes. Otis, Carrier, some of the parts. This thing is, is cheap. Guy? Eli Lilly, Brian. All right, we're going to wrap it up there with XLK, Gilead, and UTX, a big mad.